Hi, I'm Scott, and welcome to episode 6 of Child in Time, Growing Up in the 60s. Welcome. This time we're going to talk about cars, road trips, crossing the road, buses and bikes on the road, boats not on the road, and raincoats from the perspective of the 1960s. Don't worry, it'll all make sense. Probably. Let's start with buses, buses in the 60s, in particular, double-decker buses. The first time I ever saw a double-decker bus, I was about five, and I was amazed. I thought the people on the top deck were just floating up there. I was a bit disappointed when taken on the bus to find out that that was not the case. Buses had conductors who would ask for your fare and give you a ticket. I used to think going on a bus, particularly a double-decker bus and sitting upstairs, was great fun. Double-decker buses lasted in Sydney until about 1986. But I've heard recently that there's some new super-duper New double-deckers are making a comeback. It was a major thrill one Christmas to get a push bike. This was transport. Freedom and independence to get anywhere quickly and for free. I loved my bike and I rode it everywhere. To school, the shops, the park, the local swimming baths. I didn't have a helmet I don't think anyone did. You didn't have to wear one then. The other notable thing was that I I left the bike when I went into school. I left it outside shops, the pool, everywhere. I never had a chain or a lock. And it was always just where I left it. Maybe I was lucky. But I was never concerned that my bike might be stolen. Never was. Trains. We didn't live near a train station, so I have no train stories. That's it. But what about ferries? Well, my uncle was a ferry captain who sailed in Sydney Harbour. And one day during school holidays, I was invited to spend the day with him as we crisscrossed the harbour, ferrying people about. On a beautiful spring day on one of the world's best harbours, he even let me take the wheel a few times when we were out from the shore. It remains to this day the largest vehicle I have ever commanded, if only briefly. Ah, Sydney Harbour. To anyone who knows Sydney's history... I'm sure when Arthur Phillip first sailed into the harbour all those years ago with the First Fleet, he would have sailed under the harbour bridge, looked to his left and saw the opera house and thought, this is the place for us. Now, before I talk about driving and cars, I'm going to preface it all with some statistics. 
Unfortunately, in the 1960s, Australia had one of the worst road tolls in the world so far, and we are at the end of November 2022, there have been just under 300 road deaths in New South Wales. Of course, that is just under 300 too many. Every death is a tragedy. In 1968, with much less than half the cars on the road as there are now, the total for the year was 1,211 road deaths in New South Wales. It hit a peak in 1970 when the toll was 1,309. That translates to 28.9 deaths per 100,000 of population. The figure now is 4.4. That's a great improvement. But there's still a long way to go. Several individuals I went to school with were unfortunately killed in road accidents. Seatbelts were made compulsory in 1971, random breath testing in 1982, speed cameras were introduced in 1991, also compulsory helmets, airbags and more safety devices in cars, as well as ongoing education has all helped to lower the toll to recent historic lows in the last few years, and that's good. But in the 60s, we never had seat belts. It meant that we could lie across the back seat and move about a bit, which was good on long trips. Most cars had bench seats front and back. These seats with vinyl covering would deliver a stinging welcome to any bare skin if the car had been sitting in the sun for any length of time. We didn't have a car radio in our car when we were a kid, when I was a kid. It was a bit of a luxury to have the AM stations to tune in with a simple rotary dial. And the only air conditioning we had in the car when it was hot was the 4x50 variety. That is, four windows down and driving at 50 miles an hour, as it was then. Most cars had manual shifts and many had the gear stick attached to the steering column. Not all cars had blinkers in the 60s. Hand signals were acceptable. The right arm extended straight out the window, indicated that you were making a right turn. Well making a right turn when you could have your arm back and help wrestle your car to the right in the days before power steering. Placing your arm out and bending your arm at a right angle meant you were stopping. Your arm was your brake lights. Or you were indicating that you were going to turn left. If you did turn left into a petrol station, a so-called Bowser boy would be there to fill up the tank check the oil, water and tyre pressure and give the windows a clean front and back. You didn't need to get out of your car at all. Although my dad said he felt compelled to get out of the car while it was being attended because he was uncomfortable just sitting while someone worked around him. For most of the 1960s, petrol prices were pretty stable. About 30 cents a gallon. And a gallon is roughly... 4.5 litres. When we were quite young, Dad got a ute. 
and my brothers would sit in the tray as we drove around for this and that. On pretty much our first trip, Dad said, if we wanted to tell him anything he needed to know, we were to tap on the rear window and he would pull over. So after we'd been driving for a while, I felt compelled to tap on the window. Tap, tap, tap. Dad pulled over and got out to ask me what had happened. Dad, we were waving at the man in the car behind and he waved back. Did he? Yeah. Is that all? Yeah. Okay, back in the car. About five minutes further on, tap, tap, tap. Dad pulled over. What is it now, Scott? Dad, we saw a fire engine. Did you really? Yeah. Back in the car again. A little while later. Tap, tap, tap. Dad pulled over. What now? Uh, Dad, can we have an ice cream? Shortly afterwards, Dad got rid of the ute and got a station wagon. I have no idea why. Going on family road trips was as exciting as it gets for us kids. One trip, and this one was for all of two weeks, we actually crossed the border into another state. We went to Victoria. We stayed at the cheap hotel in the middle of Melbourne, and our parents made the mistake of putting us four young boys in a room by ourselves when mum and dad had a room some distance away. The wrestling, jumping about and general horseplay from four boys between the ages of 12 and 7 made life very difficult for anyone in close proximity trying to get some rest. And we were the subject of complaints by other hotel guests about the noise we were making. Unruly rock bands trashing hotel rooms had nothing on us. We were just excited to be in what was for us an alien environment. Everything was different. There was different kinds of ice creams and sweets. When we did return to Sydney from this groundbreaking trip, I felt like Marco Polo. And I resolved to go to every state and territory of Australia by the time I was 21. I'm pleased to say I achieved this goal and visited every state and territory. With the exceptions of South Australia, Western Australia and the Northern Territory. Children have always been at risk when crossing roads. Not least because they are smaller than adults and harder to see. Along with the fact that a child has not yet developed the ability to judge the speed of oncoming vehicles with anything like the acuity of an adult. Rain made things worse, and this was exacerbated by the fact that children's raincoats were exclusively dark-coloured. Bright yellow raincoats were put forward as a positive step to make children more visible in the rain, and this idea started to get media coverage. It was talked about in the playground among the boys. The overwhelming consensus was that wearing a yellow raincoat was a sissy thing to do. 
and that wearing one would be a recipe for teasing and ridicule on a par with not being able to ride a push bike, being too scared to get in the deep end at the local pool, or still going to bed with your teddy bear. Sure enough, Mum asked me if I would be willing to wear one if she purchased one for me. I weakly agreed, but would not commit to a time to go and get one tried on for size. Not long afterwards, on the next rainy day, as a matter of fact, there was a hush in the playground. It was before the bell went to go into our classrooms to start the day. There, amid the sea of grey and dark brown plastic raincoats, was a boy in yellow. It had happened. This kid, a student in the year below me, this Rosa Parks of rainwear, stood defiantly as a crowd began to gather. I wasn't close to this boy, but he was known for being a bit of a toughie, someone you wouldn't mess with, that's for sure. A boy approached him and asked, What's this with the raincoat? It's to support my team, the boy in yellow shot back. He turned and let everyone know, It's to support my team. The local major football team he alluded to played in black and gold, not yellow, but whatever. I'll never know whether the boy's parents, anticipating the reaction he would get, advised him to say he was simply wearing his club colours or that it was all his own work. I thought he was a brave boy anyway. A few days later, Mum invited me to come to the clothing shop and get the right size yellow raincoat that I had previously agreed to wear. I declined. Mum was not pleased. Thank you for listening. Please do me a favour and tell just one other person who might enjoy this podcast and spread the word. You can contact me through socials in the notes or on my website, www.childintime.life. And uh, thanks again and talk soon.